my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In the midnight hours of March 3rd, 2022, an abandoned shopping cart caught the eye of a man walking along the corner of Brooklyn's Pennsylvania and Atlantic Avenues. He first noticed it sitting outside of a pawn shop earlier in the day while headed to a friend's house. Hours later, on his way back home, he realized that the cart remained untouched. It seemed strange to him, so he went to have a closer look. Inside the cart was a brightly colored bag with a flower decal on the front. It seemed like the kind of bag an old lady would carry around and possibly forget about. He peered inside, half expecting to find an equally colorful wallet with the owner's contact information, or maybe just some miscellaneous junk nobody wanted anymore. Instead, he found something heavy wrapped in plastic trash bags. He tore them open and found a horror beyond description. At first glance, Susan Layden's torso could have easily been mistaken for a mannequin of some kind. But as we all know, it's never a mannequin. Mannequins don't bleed, for one thing. Several days later, one of Susan's legs was found hidden in a pile of trash less than four blocks away. Police quickly tracked down a suspect, 83-year-old Marceline Harvey. While serving a warrant on Marceline's apartment, they uncovered a brutal horror and there were many more horrors to come, especially when they obtained the security footage from a 99-cent store in Queens. This is Monsters. Marceline Harvey was born in Manhattan in 1938, the only child of a seamstress and a shipping clerk. Even at a young age, it was clear that she struggled with her identity. You see, before she was Marceline, she was Harvey Marceline, a tall, thin man prone to uncontrollable outbursts of rage towards women, especially if he felt they were insulting his masculinity or mocking his soft voice. 
Harvey, she would later explain to a reporter, was a bad guy, but by contrast, Marceline was a sweet, good-natured woman. But the personalities were essentially two sides of the same twisted coin, and this coin was very twisted. According to Marceline, her parents were the spoiling kind. But when her father died when she was 10 years old, her mother was left to raise her alone. Like most widows, she had a lot on her plate, so she entrusted her child to a daycare center at St. Aloysius Catholic Church. Unbeknownst to Marceline's mother, the nuns at the church regularly forced the children to eat rotten food and subjected them to physical beatings and sexual abuse. As an adult, Marceline would pinpoint this place in particular as the catalyst for her mental and emotional instability. By the time she became a teenager, Marceline would already be speeding down a dark and depraved road. Her first brush with the law occurred at age 14, when she was charged with the attempted sexual assault of an 8-year-old girl. As part of her rehabilitation, she received counseling from Catholic charities, but it didn't seem to help. A psychiatric evaluation from this period noted her, quote, truancy, theft, homosexual and heterosexual activity, and cross-dressing. After another arrest or felony assault in 1957, she kept out of trouble for a few years. She lived with her mother and took a job operating copy machines for $75 a week. Eventually, she began dating a woman named Jacqueline Bonds. Unfortunately, their relationship was incredibly volatile, thanks in no part to Marceline's frequent drinking, drug use, and fits of violence. According to records from that time, she was hospitalized in psychiatric facilities regularly and subjected her girlfriend to every manner of abuse when released. A record from a psychiatric evaluation in 1962 described her as having delusional grandiosity, suggestions of chronic schizophrenia, and paranoid reaction personality. In 1963, Marceline was again accused of sexual assault. On April 18th of that year, her girlfriend, Jacqueline, was scheduled to corroborate her alibi before a grand jury, but she never got the chance. That day, shortly before Jacqueline was due to appear before the court, Marceline brought a 32 caliber revolver to the Harlem apartment they once shared and opened fire. Jacqueline's death was an agonizing one. The first shot left her wounded, but still able to move. According to the police report, Jacqueline staggered from the bedroom, desperate to escape her attacker. Marceline chased her around the apartment and fired two more rounds. Jacqueline collapsed and died on the living room floor with a total of three bullet wounds in her body. Jacqueline's mother later recounted the events of an exchange she witnessed just six weeks before her murder. On the day that her daughter planned to break things off for good, her mother tagged along for moral support, knowing that Marceline wasn't the type to handle a breakup gracefully. And because there are certain things moms just know sometimes, she had a pretty good idea of how she was going to take the news. And as it turned out, Jacqueline's mother was right. In the midst of her intense rage, Marceline pointed a finger at Jacqueline and issued an ominous warning, saying, quote, I'll get you. Having made good on her threat, Marceline Harvey was convicted of first-degree murder in October of 1963. After a trial in which the jury couldn't decide on whether or not to hand down the death penalty, the judge gave her 20 years to life in prison. And if the story ended there, it would feel pretty satisfying. One more killer plucked off the street and stuck in a cage where they belong. 
and everybody involved in the case gets to feel like they saved a life or two. Justice was served, and it doesn't get much better than that. But that's not where the story ends, of course. In fact, it's barely even beginning. This is because Harvey did spend time in prison, but ultimately the justice served Jacqueline was half-baked at best. So what happened exactly? How did she manage to get free? Maybe tunneling through a wall? Scaling the fence, perhaps? No, it was far easier than any of that. It just took a little longer. Because believe it or not, she talked her way out of prison. To be fair, it took about 20 years and multiple failed appeals at both the federal and state levels. To be even more fair, the parole board had a laundry list of reservations, such as a long, documented history of violence towards women. Not to mention the inappropriate letters she sent to the candy stripers at the local hospital to keep herself entertained while behind bars. On top of that, there was the psychological evaluation done by three different psychiatrists after her 1963 arrest, who diagnosed her as having schizoid personality with sociopathic features, which doesn't exactly make someone dangerous. Having a mental illness makes someone more likely to be the victim of a crime as opposed to being the perpetrator. But when you look at the picture as a whole, it's hard to imagine allowing such a violent person to go free. But unfortunately, the parole board was eventually swayed by Marceline's big talk of learning from the past and finding personal growth. But despite her firm assurances that her life of crime was behind her, the words were empty. Two decades behind bars did little to calm the murderous beast lurking in Marceline Harvey's psyche. She was allowed to walk free in May of 1984. Now in her late 40s, Marceline immediately returned to her old life in New York. And less than a year after her release, she killed again. On October 30, 1985, a man named Roberto Romano was, in his own words, smoking reefer in the lobby of the Cambridge Residence Hotel. While he was hanging around, the tenant from room 602 passed by on her way to the street. The person was pushing a shopping cart with a garbage bag in it. As they made their way to the door, Roberto couldn't help but notice the blood leaking out but he thought nothing of it. Not until the woman's legs were found anyway. A few hours later, another man saw a similar bag that had been dumped close to Central Park. When he approached, he saw it was dripping with blood. Filled with unease, he quickly ripped it open. The remains belonged to 29-year-old Anna Laura Serrera Miranda. She'd been bound with a rope, stabbed over 30 times, cut into pieces, shoved into plastic bags, and scattered all around the area. Anna was a familiar face to the investigators. In life, she was gripped in the throes of a heroin addiction and turned to sex work to fuel it. Since she'd been on their radar once or twice herself, they were able to trace some of the spots she tended to visit often. And one of those spots, apparently, was room 602 at the Cambridge Residence Hotel. This was the same room that Marceline Harvey called home. She and Anna were in a relationship, although an extremely rocky one. Marceline complained that Anna would leave for days at a time or even bring Johns back to the apartment. During the trial, she told the court that Anna had stolen her flute for drug money, on top of being late with the rent. She also argued that she did not, in fact, stab her 30 times. It only looked like she had been stabbed 30 times because her body had been out in the elements for several hours. The extra wounds were obviously from some kind of wild animal. Right. She was charged with first-degree murder in 1986, 
but managed to secure a plea bargain that dropped the conviction to first-degree manslaughter. It came with a sentence of just 6 to 12 years. This crime was a parole violation from her first sentence, though, so the court was able to add additional time due to that. Despite Marceline's laughably short term, she was consistently denied release over 15 different parole hearings held during her imprisonment, and it isn't difficult to understand why. At times, she would express regret and shame over the horrors she had committed. Other times, she would blame her victims for, quote-unquote, provoking Harvey. She argued that the investigators exaggerated or fabricated evidence, but also admitted to the parole board that she had problems with women, which was definitely an understatement. If you're looking for some good news, she ended up spending the next 35 years in prison. The bad news, though, is that she only ended up spending 35 years in prison. Based on the records from these hearings, Marceline was a master manipulator and a smooth talker. Besides that, she had time on her side. By the time her parole review came around in 2019, it was hard to look at Marceline Harvey, now in her early 80s, and imagine the killer that hid behind the wrinkles and stooped posture. So she did what she had to do to gain the parole board's confidence. She completed her required classes in therapy, she followed the rules to a letter, and she knew exactly what they wanted to hear. She met all of the criteria for release, or she appeared to anyway. But appearances can be deceiving. This time around, it took a little longer to get out, but she got out just the same. Following her second release from Cayuga Correctional Facility on August 7, 2019, Marceline began transitioning. Up until this point, she was still known as a man named Harvey, but around this time, she started painting her nails and would usually wear a wig. She found refuge in a homeless shelter for women before eventually moving to an apartment at 50 Pennsylvania Avenue. Sometime during the next two years, Marceline would meet her next victim. 68-year-old Susan Layden had had a hard life toward the end, but her childhood seemed pretty normal. She was born to Claire and Nat Evans on December 18, 1953. When she was two years old, the Laydens moved to an upper-middle-class section of Teaneck, New Jersey, where Susan spent her youth taking dance classes and riding horses. She attended Teaneck High School, where she met her future husband, Stephen Layden. After graduation, Susan had a bright future up ahead. A woman with impeccable fashion sense, she began studying at Dame's Business School in Denver, Colorado, with hopes of finding work in New York's Garment District, just as her father had done before her. But as bright as it all seemed, Susan's future also had its darker spots. She lost her father to a heart attack in 1970. Within the same decade, she would also lose her two younger brothers, Howard and Stephen. As tragic as it all was, though, Susan was strong. She was a survivor. She carried on with her life and started a family of her own with the birth of her only child in 1985. Then, after 16 years of marriage, Susan and her husband split up in 1992. Now a single mother, she completely devoted herself to her daughter, Nicole. Determined to provide Nicole with the same childhood she had, Susan worked hard to build her own business, jewels and more. She loved the work and everything running a business involved, and by all accounts, she was pretty good at it. Her stylish tastes were perfectly suited to her chosen line of work, and for the next 12 years, the jewelry store became her main focus. 
by the time she was in her 50s, she was struggling with some form of mental illness, and it left her relationship with Nicole deeply strained. After spending more than 30 years in Fort Lee, New Jersey, Susan began to think she needed a change of scenery. She decided to close up her jewelry store and move to the city, hoping for a fresh start. Susan finally settled into the Stonewall House, a senior community meant for elderly members of the LGBTQ community. According to other residents, she was a friendly, stylish sort of person with a good feeling about who she was. Her friends described her demeanor around this time as happy and upbeat. She was excited about the prospect of getting a dog and couldn't wait to decorate her new apartment. The details of her relationship with her murderer remain murky, but it seems like they were friends on some level. Marceline described Susan as being part of her coven of women, but it's hard to tell what exactly that meant. Most likely, she was referring to the three women, Susan being one of them, that occasionally spent the night at her apartment. Regardless of how their association with one another started, it had a very clear, very bloody ending. On March 2, 2022, a friend reported Susan Layden is missing. Early the next morning, a man was walking home from a friend's house when he noticed a shopping cart sitting outside a Brooklyn pawn shop. In the cart sat a colorful bag with a flower decal. Curious, he went to have a look, and that was when he discovered the headless, limbless torso of Susan Layden. Not long afterward, another man found her leg hidden in a discarded tire a few blocks away. It was still wearing a bloody sock. As the news of Susan's grisly death began to spread, the residents of Stonewall House reeled in horror. Brooklyn police started tracing her final moments throughout the city, and thanks to a few well-placed cameras, it didn't take long to piece together what had happened to her. On February 27th, Susan was recorded entering Marceline's building. She was carrying the same colorful bag that her torso would eventually be found in. The security footage never captured her leaving the building, but it did show Marceline. More specifically, it showed her wheeling Susan's bag out in a shopping cart, presumably on her way to dispose of her victim's remains. Another bit of footage, taken from a 99-cent store, featured a frail-looking Marceline browsing around on a motorized scooter. When the detectives looked at the tape a little closer, something caught their eye, something that seemed oddly leg-shaped. As they played the footage back, a sickening realization settled in. She was shopping around the dollar store with Susan Layden's severed leg, which had been wrapped in a trash bag and tucked underneath the scooter. Obviously, it didn't take very long to get a warrant. During their search of the apartment, the authorities found more evidence and even more fuel for their nightmares. On top of a bloody mop, a tub full of towels, and the packaging from the electric saw used to dismember Susan, they also discovered the parts of her body that Marceline hadn't yet hidden, including her head. The medical examiner later determined that her cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. On March 4th, after just two and a half years of living a life that didn't involve an orange jumpsuit, 83-year-old Marceline Harvey was taken into custody once again. At first, she was being held on dismemberment charges, but once the evidence began to unfold over the next week or so, the indictment quickly ramped up to first- and second-degree murder, tampering with evidence and concealment of a corpse. She pleaded not guilty to all counts on March 30, 2022. 
After her arrest, the community as a whole breathed a sigh of relief, knowing that a dangerous serial killer was finally locked away for good. Marceline couldn't talk her way out of a lifetime sentence this time, but the friends and loved ones of Susan Layden were left with hearts full of questions. How could the justice system allow a person that had spent over 50 years in prison for two different murders back onto the streets? Why were there so many red flags noted during decades of parole hearings only to be ignored in the end? Marceline didn't exactly have a large circle of friends, although she liked to hang out with a handful of homeless people in Tompkins Square Park. But they had some questions too. The Marceline they knew rode around in a wheelchair and looked like a strong wind could carry her away. So how could such a fragile-looking senior citizen have the physical strength to overpower Susan in the first place, let alone use a power saw to cut her lifeless body into pieces? One person acquainted with Marceline claimed she once told him that she was a quote-unquote satanic witch and that she wished she had been born a goat. And sure, that's just some guy's random story, but given everything there is to know about Marceline Harvey, it sounds pretty in character. A Facebook page was set up in Susan's memory, and the people that knew her best flooded it with photos and stories of happier times. Her daughter, Nicole, gave a touching eulogy at her funeral. Despite the distance that had grown between them, Susan Layden was still deeply loved, and to the people that knew her, she remains dearly missed. Marceline Harvey spent over half of her life in prison for two separate murders, and hopefully she'll spend the rest of it locked up for the third. Fool the parole board once, shame on you. Fool them twice and, well, you're clearly still a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.